Well, hey, church. I want to welcome all of you to this Palm Sunday weekend. Palm Sunday is the weekend before Easter weekend, and it just marks a moment to remember when Jesus entered into Jerusalem for the last time. And he was welcomed as a king. They waved palm branches. They laid down cloaks in front of him. They sang praises. It was phenomenal. But it stands and sits in, in stark contrast to the dynamic by the end of the week, the, the rejection and the taunting and the mocking that would take place as he was executed. Palm Sunday is a significant entry and beginning of an ending in the process of something that Jesus was seeking to finish. And I'm glad you're here. Whether you're here at Rock Island or at Bettendorf, tuning in online, or the men in Kiwani, it is a privilege to share this time with you. As a church, we're committed to connecting people to God, to each other, and to their purpose. And one of the ways that we've been seeking to do that over the last few weeks is by digging into and unpacking some of the last words of Jesus, things that he said from the cross, and we've been calling it Last Words of Jesus series. And it's been powerful, impactful, and my prayer is that today God would continue to speak and move as we look at those words that Jesus spoke from the cross. But as we get ready to step back into that, I wondered if somewhere along the way you, you've been thinking about some of the last words of other people. And to talk about the last words of Jesus, maybe it's prompted to think about the last words of other people. And most often those words are, are, are things like, hey, tell so-and-so I, I love them. Or, you know, I'm sorry, forgive me. Sometimes it's even just around how that person's feeling or what they're experiencing, like they're feeling cold or they're seeing light or darkness. And then that all makes sense. I mean, we, we can track with that. But then there are these moments where people say last words that are, a bit more interesting. I'll just say a bit more interesting. Here's what I mean by that. Let me just give you a couple of examples. So this one isn't odd. It's just very interesting to me. Pope Alexander in 1503, his last words were this. Okay, okay, I'll come. Just give it a moment. <laughs> interesting. Last words. There was a 17th century French grammarian so, named, named Dominique Bohours, and, and, and he was basically an expert in grammar. These were his last words. I'm about to or I am going to die. Either expression is correct. All the way to the very end. When comedian uh, W.C. Fields was found reading his Bible on his deathbed and asked why he was doing that, here's what he said. I'm looking for loopholes. No loopholes, just facts, my friend, just facts. On Christmas Day, 1977, when his priest asked him, or stated, may the Lord have mercy on your soul, Charlie Chaplin said this, why not? It belongs to him. Interesting. And then another comedian more recently chose these last words, thank God I'm tired of being the funniest person in the room. Last words. I don't know what mine are going to be. I don't know what yours are going to be. And I don't know if those folks regretted those words or even had time to regret those words. But what I do know is that Jesus never said anything he wanted to take back. That he ever regretted. Not once. Everything he said was very intentional. 
Even in the closing moments of life on the cross for him, the words he spoke were intentional, just as intentional as any of the other sets of words. No more intentional or significant and no less intentional or significant. Significant, important. They, they mattered. And unlike many other last words spoken by other peoples, his people, his words were not marked by regret. They weren't marked by desperation. They weren't even marked by death. They were marked by power and purpose and life. And they actually matter for us today. And they matter for us tomorrow. And they matter for us into eternity. So today, just like we've done over the last few weeks, we're taking a few moments to understand how they matter, how they're relevant, looking at these words spoken some 2,000 years ago, the last words of Jesus, to know how they impact us. You see, when, when Jesus spoke, it always had significance. And much of what Jesus said is kind of scattered primarily through four books of the Bible. They're the first four books of the New Testament. And the authors of those books are identified by the names of the books. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them wrote differently, with different focus, different emphasis, even different sources. But they're all complementary in how they wrote, even though they wrote differently, out of who they were. You see, Matthew was a, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus and a former tax collector. And he wrote his book to the Jews. He wrote specifically to the people of the, of the Jewish community. Mark, whose real name was actually John Mark, was not one of the 12 disciples, but he was a follower of Jesus and a close companion with Paul. And in his book, he actually records the most miracles, and it's believed by most scholars that he wrote his book first. Luke was a doctor, and he was Greek. And it's believed that most of what Luke wrote, and he has a lot of detail and specificity coming out of his doctor identity. Most of what he wrote came from the testimony of Jesus' mom, Mary. And then there's John, uh, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's the only disciple to die of natural causes and an obvious eyewitness by how he wrote, by what he wrote. Now, all four books are commonly called the Gospels. Gospel means good news. And they each focus on the life and ministry of Jesus, which his life and ministry was filled with good news. So what I want to be able to do today is, with that in mind, is to step back to the hillside outside of Jerusalem. Back to the beauty and brokenness of three crosses. One holding an innocent man and two holding guilty men. One of those guilty men now forgiven, the other still defiant. And we're going to end up in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 19. So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and click or turn there, put your thumb in there, put a bookmark, whatever you need to do. But that's where we're going to settle in for our last words in this conversation today. But one of the unique components of this whole journey, and you've got to understand the context that we're in, in case you've missed any of it, that we're, we're picking up the story where Jesus is crucified. He's on the cross. He's already asked that God would forgive those who were complicit in what was happening. He's already promised the, the one thief who believed in him that he would be in heaven with him that day. And he's even, he's even cried out in desperation in the sense of separation he was feeling from God, as we looked at last week. But he's about to offer a few more words as the brutal process of crucifixion is nearing its end, and so is his mission. 
See, one of the things to understand is that there was an earthquake that happened prior to this. There was darkness, the tearing of the temple veil, and dead people were raised to life. There was just craziness happening around in this environment at the moment that we're picking up the story. Because fundamentally, this isn't just about what Jesus said. It's about what he did and why he did it. And we're not just looking at what he said, but what he did and why he did it. And that's important because there's a simple reality, and it goes to the first fill in your note, God, if you want to take a look, is that what Jesus did is just as momentous. What he did is just as momentous as why he did it, as why he did it. We've been looking at what Jesus said alongside what he did, and that's important, but it's, it's also important to understand why he actually did those things. And one of the other disciples who was actually in the inner circle among the 12, he's part of a smaller group of three that Jesus invested in a little more intentionally. His name was Peter. And Peter was a leader among that group and among the disciples. And here's something that Peter would later go on to write as it relates to the why, connecting to the what of what Jesus did. He said, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. There's a, there's a complete finality in all that. Once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. It's the why and the what, that, that Jesus did what he did to be able to position us to come home safely to God. What Jesus did is just as momentous as why he did it. He brought rescue, and we're going to see today that he actually finished something that is not done. He finished something that's not yet done. So as we get ready to step back into Scripture, there's a fundamental reality that God loves you and he loves me. He desires relationship with you and I. He, he's created a, a means by which we can step into relationship with him. And as we've seen so far in our series, there's a couple of key components of this conversation that are relevant as we continue to lean into it. One of those is simply the reality about that nothing, that there is nothing Jesus won't forgive. There's something we looked at week one. There's nothing Jesus won't forgive. It speaks to his willingness to forgive and even his ability to forgive. But here's the, here's the hard reality. There are things he can't forgive. Like, what? That doesn't make any sense. No, listen. He, he has the power to forgive anything. There is, there's nothing he's not willing to forgive. The problem is he cannot forgive anything we don't give him. He cannot forgive anything we don't turn from. We don't repent of. Anything that we choose to hold on to and cling to and, and still invest in and, and look for some kind of identity and purpose in that brokenness and in that sin, he cannot forgive that. He wants to. He's willing. But he can't forgive what we don't give him. But understanding that and desiring us to have fullness of life, here's the deal. Jesus didn't save himself so he could ultimately position us to experience salvation. He, he did not save himself. He didn't choose to save himself so he could ultimately save us. And we're going to talk about how he did that and how he's able to declare what he declared in the scripture we're looking at today out of John 19. He didn't save himself so he could save us. And in the midst of being on the cross, in that complexity, he experienced brokenness, but he did not experience hopelessness because there was purpose in it. He had a why behind the what. And he was focused on it, he was committed to it, and he was chasing it with all that he was. There's nothing Jesus won't forgive. He didn't save himself so he could save us. And and even in the brokenness he experienced, he did not lose hope. And all of that allows him to intercede on behalf of us in our broken spaces and ultimately bring us home safely to God. But there are some things to understand for us to experience that. So again, this is Palm Sunday. 
weekend that we're just acknowledging that entry into Jerusalem. And, and it's a bit of a bittersweet thing. There's some joy and sorrow to it. The reality is it's the beginning of a beautiful moment, but it ultimately ends in a heartbreaking reality of crucifixion. But that crucifixion is the place by which we can have life and be brought home safely to God. But as Jesus enters into that process, he goes through his week and he ends up on the cross. He declares a few more words. And that's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to jump right now to John chapter 19, starting at verse 28. Later knowing that everything had now been finished. And so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. Now that's, that's an important eyewitness detail. That's one of the ways that we can see and know that John, eyewitness who was there, who was part of that journey, is writing this. It's an eyewitness detail. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. It is finished. Those words are significant. They have layers and nuances that we're going to unpack to a degree today, but understand it is finished is life-changing. There's a finality to that statement. There, there's a finality even to other statements. If we just think about another context, you think of like, uh, like baseball. Any baseball fans in the room? Bettendorf, raise your hand. Okay, you know when you hear out or safe, there's a finality to it. Even though players and coaches will come up to the, to the officials and try to convince some change in the call, the call is the call. There's a finality to it, right? There's even another dynamic, like maybe in a court setting, we have a jury or a judge and they declare guilty or not guilty. There's a finality to it. There's significance in the statement. Even in a marriage paradigm, you say, like, I do. There's a significance and a commitment that has a longevity that's supposed to continue till death do us part. Those statements are significant in their context of finality. And, and maybe you have said those things, heard those things, or things like them. But the words that Jesus spoke, man, far surpass those things I just described. Those things are nothing compared to what Jesus said when he said, it is finished. It's, it's so significant. That statement, it is finished, is actually only recorded in the Gospel of John. It's only captured in John. Now, Matthew, here's what Matthew says. Matthew says, Jesus cried out in a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Mark says that he cried, uh, with a loud cry, he breathed his last. Luke talks, talks about the darkness and the veil being torn. And then Jesus says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And, and then says, with this, he, had, he breathed his last. But John brings a little different perspective to it. He's in the audience. He's got a different audience. He's writing to the Greeks. And understanding his audience and understanding that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written primarily to the Jews... He, he understands that, and he, and he writes the words, it is finished. It's a declaration that's laden with power and hope and expectancy. But to understand the, the fullness of these words, we really need to understand what Jesus finished. It's like, okay, great, he finished, but what did he finish? So here's what I want you to understand. Then when the statement, it is finished, the literal translation, it is finished, comes from the Greek word tetelestai. So that, that word, which is actually root word of teleo, is the literal translation of, of it is finished. It comes from that, tetelestai. 
Teleo means finish or fulfill or accomplish or pay. And so the it is finished is pretty clear about what it means, but it's only found in John 19, verses 28 and 30, in all of Scripture. 28, it says Jesus knew it was finished, and in verse 30, Jesus declares it is finished. Now, there's a unique nuance in this. The word to telestai is also used, or is also used in business practices, specifically when it came to receipts, when it came to, to business documents, where they would literally take a receipt when the, when the cost was covered, that they would write to telestai, or abbreviation of that word, to say that it was paid in full. And, and, and to telestai, and the implication of being paid in full would not have been lost on the Greeks. It would have been totally obvious. They would not have missed the declaration that was being made that Jesus paid a debt in full. To telestai. It is finished. He became sin so we could become holy. Jesus took on the weight of sin and allowed it to be crucified with him on the cross. And that cross and his sacrifice broke the power of sin. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, we can read these words. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. To tell us die. It is finished once for all time. He successfully offered himself to pay a debt that we ultimately could not pay so that we could experience life. He was broken so we could be made whole. He took the weight of sin, my sin, your sin, our sin, and declared it finished. Theologian John Stott says it this way, at the cross, in holy love, God, through Christ, paid the full penalty of our disobedience himself. Paid in full. It is finished. Oh, praise him. Oh, praise him. It is finished. Paid in full. Accomplished. Every promise and prophecy finished. Every sacrament and ceremony of the priests in the Old Testament finished. Perfect obedience finished. God's need and demand for justice finished. And the power of Satan and the power of sin and death finished. In that moment, Jesus, in his work on our behalf, says it's finished. But catch this. Even though it is finished... It is not over. Even though it's finished, it is not over. Even though it's finished, the work is not done. It's finished, but it's not over. Hang with me for a moment. I want you to think about something with me. We, as we function as, uh, as humans, we can know something. But that's not the same as if we believe something. We can know something, and we can believe something. Neither of those are the same as actually receiving something. To know, to believe, to receive. 
To, to know is head knowledge. Like, I got the fact. I got the information. I, I, I have an awareness is to know. To believe actually moves beyond just knowing it to, to kind of this almost bracing of the heart of like, I'm believing it. But believing is, is not the same as receiving. Receiving is life. It's receiving is allowing authority. It's receiving is allowing identity and purpose to be defined. So I can know something, I can believe something, I can receive something. They're different. Let me put this in a simple context. You may know that snow is cold and wish it wasn't here right now. You may know it's cold and you may believe that it's cold. But until you actually put your hands on it and touch it, you don't experience that coldness. Think about it this way. You may know that a car has brakes. You may believe it can stop the car, but until you apply the brakes, it won't do it. <laughs> There's a difference between knowing, believing, and receiving. Now hear me. The implications and the power of what Jesus did in declaring it was finished, the implications are released as we move from believe to receive. It, that power, the declaration of it is finished, happens as we move from believe to receive, as we go from just head knowledge to embracing a level of the heart to allowing it to define who we are and what we do. There's a difference. Knowing, believing, and receiving. We need to understand the difference, otherwise we won't ever actually live into the fullness of what God has for us. Or the implications of what it means that what Jesus did is finished. So let's dig into this a little bit further. Here's what I want to do. I actually want to jump from John 19 to Luke 19. So if you've got your own Bible, you can go ahead and go there. It's going to be on the screen. It's also in your guide. We're just going to go a little bit deeper, understanding that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talked about the crucifixion. They all did it differently. They had different angles and perspectives on it. But here's the deal. They were never in conflict. There's, there's this beautiful narrative that's woven in the uniqueness of their own perspectives. They're complementary in how they do that. In fact, all of Scripture is like that. I love, I love that this book is layered like a tapestry with lots of perspectives and angles to look and understand the truth and to know the love of God. I, I never get tired of reading Scripture because of the complexities in that and the nuances around different perspectives. And it's the words of Jesus that serve as guideposts for us for how we can find healing and hope and, and comfort and peace. So we're jumping here to Luke 19, which is a common story or familiar story about a man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a, was a tax collector of diminutive stature. He was short. And he had heard about Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus, but there's too many people. So he climbed up into a tree to see. And, and here's where we're picking up that part of the passage. Here's what happens. When Jesus reached this spot, that's the spot where Zacchaeus was, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. That's, that's significant. His response, he had some knowledge. He had some level of like who this dude is. But as Jesus engages with him, he begins to experience something different. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. So you got to understand something. We looked at this early on in our process, that proximity to Jesus creates space to change. And that's what's happening for Zacchaeus. He had some knowledge, and he's moving now through a process of belief and receiving because of proximity to Jesus. But here's what Jesus says. He says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. 
Now, hang on a second. Some of you are like, why are we looking at this on Palm Sunday? We should be looking at the Hosanna Palm thing, right? Okay, hang on. Hang on. To understand fully what is finished and what that means, we've got to understand the nature of the rescue. And rescue, hear me, next feeling if you track along with your note guide. Rescue is not found in striving, but receiving. Rescue is not found in striving, but in receiving. We don't simply strive for rescue. We don't strive into fullness of life. It's not about us being good enough. It's not about our worthiness. It's not about us achieving some level. It's not about our earning. It's about what Jesus earned. It's about his goodness and his worthiness. And it's something we get to receive because it is a finished work. It is finished. And we can receive it. If we move past knowing and believing to receiving we got to acknowledge our need because ultimately in that dynamic, re- receiving is, is not found in striving, or excuse me, rescue is not found in striving, but receiving. And for Zacchaeus, this moment that's taking place when Jesus declares salvation, it's not about what he did with his stuff. It's about what he did with Jesus. What he did with Jesus, what he did with his stuff was a direct reflection of what he was doing with Jesus. He declares Jesus Lord. And when he declares him Lord, it begins to change how he functions. He says, man, I'm going to give half of my stuff, and I'm going to four times over pay back the people that I have just messed over in that dynamic. That was a reflection of him knowing, believing, receiving. And now he lived differently, under different authority, different accountability, and let Jesus define his identity and purpose. Rescue is not found in striving, but receiving. And in that dynamic, as, as Zacchaeus, it's not... <laughs> What he did reflected the why behind it, and the why was the lordship he identified in Jesus. But here's, Jesus goes on to say something about his why. Here's what we go back to that scripture and emphasize the last part of that passage. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the what? The lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You want to know the why behind the what? That's it. That's it. You want to summarize all of the Christian faith? You want to summarize the whole gospel? That's it. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He, he came to rescue. Now the world will tell us that for us to have life, for us to even step into some spiritual next, we've got to accomplish something. We've got to prove something. We've got to be good enough. We've got to earn something. But listen, Jesus turned that all on its head. Jesus says it's about receiving. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. Our responsibility is to respond to that, to receive it. The world will tell us we need to climb trees like Zacchaeus to earn something, get somewhere. But the reality is we ultimately just need to receive in order to come safely home to God. To receive, to move from knowing to believing to receiving. John, John records those words, it is finished. But hear me, 18 chapters earlier, the very beginning of the Gospel of John, here's something else he wrote. Check this out. He, Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not what? Receive him. Yet to all who did what? Receive him. To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Knowing, believing, receiving. Keep going on from there. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Born of God. See, Knowing, believing, receiving. We can be born of God. The, the work that Jesus finished can be received. All the rights and privileges, all the access, 
that allows us to navigate the complexity of this life. A life marked by loss and pain and death and sorrow. As children, as sons and daughters of the king, everything begins to change. The world says we got to strive to achieve. Jesus turns that all on its head and says you need to believe and receive. He did that with Zacchaeus and he's willing to do that with you and I. If we're if we're willing not to stop with knowing or even stop with believing, but actually step into receiving. It's an important reality. The statement, it is finished, tells us that our striving and our attempts to go home safely to God on our own are misguided. The, The statement, it is finished, tells us that God reached down to us. He came to us. He became one of us to save us and bring us home. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. It is finished, but it is not over. Because there is a decision that has to be made to experience the fullness of what he finished. And once we receive, well, then we get to do the work alongside him, not to be saved, but because we are saved. Knowing, believing, receiving. Let me just pause for a moment because I want to highlight something out of this moment with Zacchaeus that's just going to step to the side. You know, there's this beautiful reality that everything Jesus did was a model for us. Everything he said, everything, every way he lived. And he, he is our example and our standard. So when Jesus went to Zacchaeus and, and invited himself to Zacchaeus' house, it, it gets in that moment. He's demonstrating a value of creating embrace space. Of creating space to connect with people who may be broken. People who maybe have done wrong, made poor choices. People who are difficult, in difficult circumstances. Jesus did that, and we're supposed to do that. As a church, we seek to create spaces to embrace, spaces to build bridges, spaces where the love of God and the, and the power of Jesus through the Spirit can be, can be intersecting in that life so they can make a choice to know, believe, receive. Jesus did that. We're supposed to do that. It's a messy place to be. It's really a simple concept, create embrace space, but it's a very messy, complicated thing to live in when you're dealing with people and the complexity. For you, if you've got a family member that's continually making bad decisions and in difficult circumstances, you want to create embrace space for them, that's beautiful, but that can be difficult. Trying to love people who hurt you, beautiful, but difficult. Uh, Sitting in proximity to people who don't share your beliefs, beautiful, but difficult. Again, people who've made some really poor choices. Creating embrace space is important, and we need to strive for that. One of the ways that we can do that coming up very specifically is to participate in the Quad Cities Big Table. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I want to bring it back up to you to encourage you to continue to pray. This is an opportunity where we as a church are partnering in the Quad Cities, where there are going to be hour to hour and a half conversations taking place over April 20th and 21st around tables of 10 or so, all across the cities, in, in living rooms and business places, all over, where people are getting together to connect, to listen, and learn. And listen, bridging gaps, building bridges starts by listening. Creating embrace space starts by listening. And in those moments, we're going to have the opportunity to love people and connect with them, but to seek the peace and prosperity of our cities. And I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider engaging in that moment, engaging in one of the table conversations. There's three ways you can do it. You can just participate, or you can be a host of a public table where people will be assigned, or you can be a host of a private table where you invite your own participants. If you want more information, you can go to quadcitiesbigtable.com or for more specific instructions on how to engage, you can go to heritageqc.com forward slash qcbigtable. And we have videos, how-to videos, to navigate this site a little bit and to sign up for spaces where you can be a participant, you can be a host, or you can actually host a public or a private table. 
So I encourage you to lean into that because that's an opportunity for us to embrace, create an embrace space. But let's go back to this thing I'm talking about with you and, and just the reality here. That day when Jesus was crucified, there were people there who knew about him. They, they knew stuff about him. Maybe heard some things, saw some things. And there were some people there who believed in him. One of those people was actually a centurion who, who stood before the cross and said, surely this man was the son of God. Powerful moment. There was some level that that man saw and knew things about Jesus, watched the process where he reached some level of his heart engagement to believe. Now, I don't know if he moved to receive because there's a difference between believing and receiving. And the truth is, believing is a starting point, not the destination. In, in James, the book of James, it says, you believe? That's great. Even demons believe and shudder. Okay, so belief is a starting point. It's not the destination. We're supposed to get to receive. Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you believe in your heart and profess in your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That's the beginning of moving into a place where we actually receive. This is a space where we give authority where we let Jesus define who we are and what we do, and we begin to experience the fullness of his power at work in us and the fullness of his finished work. We've got a choice to knowing, to be in a place of knowing, a place of believing, or a place of receiving. There's a difference in those individual layers. And my prayer is that as you process what is finished by Jesus, that you'll understand how to engage in that reality with all the rights and privileges, all the access to navigate the complexities of life. So what? Here's the thing. I think we all know and understand that, that what we ultimately are doing in our life, what we do next is shaped by what we do now. What, what happens next, what we experience in life, in relationships and in our spiritual journey is shaped by what we do now. So what we do today impacts ultimately what we experience tomorrow. And the work of Jesus is finished, but it is not over. It takes a personal engagement and investment to know that we rest on his finished work. We move from knowing to believing to receiving. And then once we receive, we're positioned to work alongside him, not to be saved, but because we are saved. But here's the challenge I think that many embrace around Easter and the whole thing that we're talking about. And I'm going to step a little bit from the cross to the tomb, the empty tomb. Because I think we look at crucifixion and resurrection, we think, it, we think it's all just summarized with salvation. And I gotta tell you, that is the most significant, the most beautiful reality of what Jesus did in sacrificing and suffering and then coming back to life. It is salvation, to bring us home safely to God. But listen, that's not all. That's not all his life and death and resurrection means. There is the reality for our, our now and our next. It's not just about a life to come eternal life. There is a promise of that, and that is beautiful and wonderful. But hear me, the power of Jesus at work in our life is available now. Resurrection power is available now. The, 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 the Spirit of God raised Jesus from the dead, and that same Spirit is made available to you and I. The moment we move from knowing to believing to receiving, there's a process where the Holy Spirit is imparted to us, and now we have resurrection power in us. And that is for now and next. It's not just a promise of a life to come. It's the promise of a life now. It's the fullness of life. Jesus came for us to be free. Jesus came that we have life and life to the full. And there is a now and there is a next reality that positions us to navigate the, the challenges of life, to, to experience healing, to experience power, to experience hope and strength, 
Resurrection power can restore. It can restore your marriage. Resurrection power can, can heal that wound, can heal your heart, can sustain you in the face of loss, in the face of, of death. It can empower you in the difficulty and hardship. It can give you joy in, in the midst of sorrow. It can give you hope in the midst of tragedy. There is no limit to what the Holy Spirit can impart and bring into our lives when we receive. When we receive, welcome, and give authority to Jesus in our life, the Holy Spirit begins to work and move. And my friends, when Jesus says it is finished, it is finished. Full redemption, that the power of sin is broken, that there There is freedom in Jesus, and we are created in position to have life and life to the full. It is not simply the promise of a life yet to come. It is that, but there is a life to be lived now in the power of the resurrection. And we're going to celebrate that more as we step into the Easter reality. But we have to receive that life, to move from just belief and move from just knowledge into belief and into receiving. What happens next is defined by what happens now. So the choices you and I make today will impact things yet to come in our life. And since the work of Jesus is finished, I wonder what Jesus actually wants to finish further in your life today. Maybe the question I really want to put before all of us is what is not yet finished in your life today? What's not yet finished? What, what area of your life is he trying to work a new thing? An area maybe around a habit or an area, a place where, you're, where you need healing in your heart or your soul or a relationship. Or you, you lost hope in the complexity of the dynamic you're sitting in. You've got an addiction. You've got some brokenness where it, that thing's chewing up your life. And you need the resurrection power of Jesus to come through by claiming the finished work and believing and receiving what he has done. What Jesus did, man... It, it, And his approach into Jerusalem and his approach to the cross and in his final actions and his final words, man, it can define our now and our next if we let it. And because it is a finished task, we can proclaim him as king and we can experience the same power that raised him from the dead. Because it is finished, we have a hope and a future. But I wonder what you're going to say, what your words will be in response to his words. Because fundamentally, you and I have a choice to settle with just knowing, I heard it, I, I, I can intellectually wrap my head around it, to settle with knowing, or to step into believing and settle there, or to fully engage the power of a risen Lord in receiving, in giving him authority, in allowing him to heal what's been broken in your life, allowing him to... to, to to reconcile the messed up relationship, to free you from the addiction, to break the chains of every sin, to break the chains of death, and to position you with life now and next. What is it that is not yet finished that Jesus wants to finish in you? Whatever it is, I encourage you to have the conversation right where you're at. Perhaps you know Jesus, you believed in him, and maybe you received him at some point, but somewhere along the way, you've not lived under his authority. We're in his power. So today you can recommit. If you've never taken that step, you just, I've known a lot, I've celebrated Easter, I, I do have some belief, but you've never really received. You've never surrendered authority. That's your opportunity today. And the instructions on the back of your note guide and a brief prayer will position you to be able to do this and begin to experience life and life to the full. Let him finish the work. Let him bring his finished work into your life by the power of the Holy Spirit and see 
a whole new dynamic as you surrender and receive. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that even in the complexity of this life, even when we face failure and mistakes, we face pain of, of betrayal, we, we face rejection, God, we face loss, whether it's loss of health or loss of a job or loss of life of a loved one. God, when we're, when we're staring into those spaces, may we be willing to sit in your finished work. May we be willing to receive the fullness of what you offer through your son Jesus and the Holy Spirit at work in us. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters as they process where you want to finish some work this week. May we all be willing to let you do that out of the finished work you've done, out of the salvation that comes through belief and profession, but into a space where we yield and we experience not just a portion of you, but all of you, the full extent of your power at work in our lives for your glory. So Jesus, may you continue to speak and lead as we continue to worship. And we pray this all in your name. And everybody said, amen.